Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are your investments taking on a green tinge? As climate change protesters stop the traffic in London, consumer interest in ethical investing is accelerating fast. Here to discuss with me is our star investment columnist, Marin Somerset-Webb. British households have been spending more than they earn for a few years, according to the ONS, and problem debt is rising. Our money mentor, Lindsay Cook, says debt problems affect consumers of all income levels, and she has some tips if you are in the red. And as US markets hit record highs, you might be pretty pleased with your portfolio's performance. But be warned, Simon Edelston, fund manager at Artemis, says that hubris is one of the biggest threats to your long-term financial performance. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. There's a huge buzz surrounding ESG investing. ESG short for ethical, social and governance, the three factors used to measure the sustainability of our investment choices. With an array of funds and new products being launched to meet investor demand for do-goodery, can it really be good for our planet and for our wallets in the long term. Joining me now is Merrin Somerset-Webb. Welcome, Merrin. Thank you, Claire. So a seismic column you wrote about this issue um, <laughs> last weekend. I've got to ask you, is this just greenwash and do-goodery? There is a huge amount of greenwash in the industry. I mean, there is nobody who won't tell you when you go and talk to them about their fund or their method of managing that, you know, sustainability is the most important thing and they're putting huge pressure on management to do this or management to do that and they're really engaging and active investing is now about being actively good, etc., etc. Now, some some fund managers do this, some companies really do it, some fund managers don't. And, uh, you know, I'm pleased to see it happening in that one of the things that uh, I've been agitating for as a view for the last kind of 15, 20 years is for big fund managers to step up to the plate and take on the social responsibility that we effectively give them when we hand our money over to them and ask them to invest in the equity market. So there's a lot of the ESG program that is very admirable and well admirable in the sense that it should have been done a long time ago, but at least it's finally being done. Yes. So things like executive pay and uh, you know various egregious practices of some of our big corporates, it's quite right that the fund managers should be on that. So yes, there is greenwash here. Yes, there is conspicuous do-goodery, but underlying it is a nice change where we can see the fund managers beginning to say, okay, I have to take responsibility for some of the behaviours of the corporate world because 
I am the, not actually the owner, but the intermediary between the owner and the corporate. So I have a social role and I've got to use it. That matters. Absolutely. And that has been a big theme in your columns, as you say, in the FT for, for many years. But this week's column, you say that what concerns you about ESG is when fund managers try and overreach their brief. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you move into an area of moral overreach and, it, you know, it's so easy. This all, always happens with campaigns of any kind. You have a campaign, nothing happens, people start to react, you get the beginnings of a crusade and then you move into an era of intense overreach. And one of the things to remember about fund managers is because we no longer have a system of direct shareholder democracy, i.e. you and I have really no ability to affect the way our fund manager behaves. We don't have a vote. We don't go to OEMs anymore. There's no look through voting for us uh, with regards to the behavior of the corporates held in the funds that we've invested in. So we've effectively handed over our shareholder democracy to fund managers. Now, when they're using that power well, you know, having a go at you know, to, uh, sorry, executive pay, etc., that's fine. We all go, well, that's wonderful. But then there comes a point when things are a bit more fuzzy. And one of the things I talk about in the column is Larry Fink's annual letter and how this year he writes that... Um, you know, when governments aren't stepping up to the plate to deal with racial inequality, uh, wealth inequality, with the rise of populism, etc., companies have to do something. And then you begin to think, well, actually, hang on a tick here. Do companies have to do something? Do fund managers have to make companies do something about these things? Or have we reached a point where suddenly we're asking unelected, overpaid middlemen like Larry Fink to control the moral environment? And do you then say, well, hang on a tick. That's for governments to do. You, Mr. Fink, can shut up about that stuff. That's what we have our democratically elected governments to do. You need to make sure that companies are behaving in a reasonably socially responsible way, but in the main adhering to all the legal requirements that we as shareholders want them to adhere to in such a way that they will make us long-term returns. That's it. That's your job. Don't be getting into the moral universe because we've got democracy for that. So that's kind of my concern that you reach a point where people start to talk about the way fund managers should behave in moral terms. And morality is a much more subjective matter than margins. Yes. Well, coming to that investment performance, do you think that investors who pick ESG style investments should be prepared to sacrifice some return for their good intentions? I don't know. I mean, probably. You know, you can you can look at statistics on this from either side. You get the ESG lobby that will provide you with statistics showing you that there's absolutely no uh, loss of return from choosing specific ESG funds. You'll get the other side telling you that there is. But what should happen now is that what I would like to see over the long term is is ESG funds simply not existing at all because we can trust our fund managers to make sure that all our funds are run in such a way as to be suitable for the majority of the population, the majority of the of the well-meaning, right-thinking population. We shouldn't have this division. It's the same as we always say about, um, you know, fund managers having heads of ESG inside their corporation. Mm. If good practice was embedded throughout the fund manager, you wouldn't need a head of ESG. Uh, and so that's what we should be working towards. We should be looking to an environment where all fund managers are using the power which we give them uh, correctly and inside the parameters that are appropriate for a fund manager that is not an elected government. And therefore, we should have no, no further need to argue about whether a fund is uh, ESG compliant or not, because the business should become better in general. That's a bit waffly, but I think you know what I mean. Oh, I think our readers would disagree that it was waffly, but thank you very much there to Marin Somerset Webb. You can read her column all about 
ESG Investing now on our website, ft.com slash money. And she'll be with us this weekend on, we don't know what topic yet, because it's too early in the week, but I'm sure we can persuade her to come back and speak to us about it another time. Thanks, Marin. Pleasure. Our next item, Britain has been on a credit binge. The average consumer now owes nearly £8,000 and ONS statistics show households have spent more money than they have received for an unprecedented nine quarters in a row. Is it any wonder, therefore, that problem debt is on the rise? Joining me now is our money mentor, Lindsay Cook, who has written all about the issue this week. Welcome, Lindsay. Hello. So, Even the relatively well-off can get into debt problems, can't they? Absolutely. It's often easier for them as well because they're bombarded with their special transfer rate on their credit cards so they can transfer debts from other cards. And before they know it, they've got tens of thousands of debt without really thinking about it. They also can take out interest-free cards and it seems like the, the answer to all their problems. Oh, I've transferred £9,000 here. Oh, I've got some money to spend. And they just go back and it can be a dreadful cycle. I was in a room with 30 quite well-paid women in the city not long ago, looked like you and me. Mm. They all had debts and they had a lot of them had been incurred through credit cards. Some had been through renting and not getting their deposits back and then borrowing to cover the next deposit. And they were sometimes three deposits behind by the time they got the first one back. And it's so easy. And I'm afraid credit cards make it quite easy as well because we're all encouraged to go paperless. We all use contactless. And so you just don't know where you are. Yes, we lose touch with the the physicality of cash. But you highlighted there that credit card debt is a particular issue that you come across in the debt workshops and things that you run. Tell us about one of the people that you've met and helped in recent years who, without really thinking about it, had run up credit card debt of £30,000. Well, she ran a business. She's successful. And one of the problems was that sometimes the people that she provided services to didn't pay her quickly enough. Mm. And so she used credit cards to back her business up. They were her private credit cards, but they she used them to um, buy new stock and things like that. And before she knew it, she got up to more than £30,000 worth of credit. She didn't even know how much credit she'd got. She had lots of different cards. She had mm. lots of different cards, one of which she picked up when she went to Tesco one weekend. And it was uh, by the till. <laughs> it was by the till, and it just filled a gap. And her crisis came. Her business was doing going steadily. She was doing OK, but she was only paying off the minimum on her credit cards. And she had an interest-only mortgage. And the crisis came when the lender, because she was over 50, said, no, we're not going to um, allow you to extend. We're going to... Um, you've got to pay it all off. I think she was given two years to pay 100000 So she then said, I need to assess everything. She had a good house. She just didn't want to sell it at that time. So she never felt she was in debt because her house was worth more than all she owed. But she would have had to sell her house to cover it all. And that's how a lot of people feel. If they're living in a substantial house, mm. the second car is a necessity. Sometimes school fees can be... It's the only way we can get Johnny into a decent school. And it's all different things, which while you're working are fine. But 
most people have a crisis. It may not be interesting. It could be an illness. Yes. It could be an unexpected child. It could be losing your job. And most of the people who seek help do so after having one of these crises. It can even be the car not working and you need the car for work. And it's going to cost more to repair than to buy a new one. So then, oh, nobody will lend me money for the car. What am I going to do? And it's those sort of things that affect, as I say, people like you and me. We have not got debts, I hope, but it's that sort of, it's really ordinary people. You can't tell a debtor from another person by looking at them. So what advice would you give to listeners who are listening to this and thinking, "Mm, you know, I can hear myself reflected in some of these comments. I'm a bit worried about my debt levels. How should they get them down? First of all, pour a glass of wine. Look at all the all all the <laughs> all the um records you've got of what you owe on what cards. I mean, it's quite frightening. I don't spend all my credit limit, but if I had, I'd be deeply deeply in debt and some people do because of different crises, etc. So find out what you owe. Find out what the interest rates are because they will be different and it's not always easy to find out what interest rate. Also, just check you're not paying any penalties. See if you can get rid of the most expensive one. Just can it and then pay it off. Pay it off if you can. If you are eligible for zero interest cards, they are a godsend as long as you take them out or transfer the money and then cut them up so you can't increase the amount you spend. You've got to budget. You can't just expect to go on shopping every payday or whatever and cut your spending. You've got to cut on your food costs, your eating out, whatever it is that those Ubers, all those things that are um, contactless and you don't count. You cut those down, but it is very difficult. I met somebody recently who, through bad investment, foolish investment, was £30,000 in debt. She hadn't even told her partner. She managed to clear that Within 18 months, she was tackling the most expensive first. She did get another job. She did as much overtime as she could in the job she had as well. So apart from anything else, one thing she said was, if you get an extra job, and there are jobs around now, you don't have time to spend. Well, yes, that's true. Become a slashy, as they've said this week, a journalist slash broadcaster slash debt advisor, which I think is probably an apt description of you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks very much there to Lindsay Cook. You can read our full report on Britain's problem debt crisis in the FT Money section this week. There's a terrific column from Lindsay and a report from me after I spent a day working inside a debt helpline. Lindsay Cook will be on the panel at our next FT Money Reader event, which is entitled Roots to Retirement, to be held in London on the evening of Monday the 29th of April. We'll be covering all aspects of planning for later life, including pensions, tax planning and second careers. I'll be chairing the discussion, which will also feature our pensions correspondent Joe Cumbo and investment columnist Michael Martin of Seven Investment Management. Tickets cost £35 and include wine and canapes, two glasses of wine if you're quick. If you would like to book or view full terms and conditions, go to ft.com slash money event. That link again for tickets is ft.com slash money event. And finally, the stock market appears to be in a melt up. That's the opposite of a meltdown as US markets hit a record high this week. Now, assuming that you're not sitting it out in cash, you could be pretty pleased with your portfolio's recent performance. But does that make you a good investor? Or is it 
just the market. Simon Edelstone, a fund manager with Artemis, has written about this conundrum in FT Money this week, and he joins me now in the studio. Welcome, Simon. Hello. So how can investors avoid the dangers of hubris? Well, hubris, or overconfidence, I suppose, affects us all. I think it affects our investment behaviour uh, rather more critically than some of our other behaviours. Uh, what we do as professional full-time investment managers is we try to write everything down, basically just keep a notebook. And if you buy a share or if you buy a fund, if you write down what you think is going to make that share or that fund go up, and then if a few years later you either read the chairman's statement of the company after their results and see what he thinks is making his shares go up, or you read the manager's report of a fund a few years after you've bought that fund and see what that fund manager has to say about why their fund has gone up and you compare it with your notes from earlier, it can give you a bit of a surprise. Uh, You can find uh, on occasions that uh, the fund or the share has gone up for exactly the reasons that you foretold many years earlier, or you can find that the shares have gone up or or the the fund has gone up for completely different reasons. And if it is completely different reasons, uh, and if you've got a profit, an unexpected profit, outside your basic thesis, it might be quite a good time for you to look yourself in in the eye, look in the mirror and say to yourself, well, actually, I've just got lucky here. This is not me, the investment genius I thought it was. And this is not a model for future successful investments. It's just luck and a bull market. Uh, And this might be quite a good time uh, to go through some investments. It's certainly what we're doing, going through some investments and just checking whether they've gone up for the reasons we expected or not. Now, in the column that you've written for us this week, you describe this kind of behaviour as confirmation bias. You were expecting something to go up, it does go up, and you ignore it, you don't look into the reasons why it's gone up. But another risk that can trip up investors if things don't go so well is a loss aversion. Tell us what that is. Yeah, so confirmation bias is, is where people just look for evidence to support their own prejudices all the, all the time. Uh, You get that in political arguments as well. You could probably think of some at the moment. Uh, Loss aversion (laughs) goes hand in hand with that in in a particularly difficult way. Uh, One of the other things that behavioural psychologists have found out scientifically is that we're much more inclined to take a profit than to take a loss. People hate taking a loss. They hate admitting that they're wrong. Now, the trouble here is, if you go back to the example I gave of keeping a notebook, if you bought a share or you bought a fund and it's gone down and you look back at your reasons for buying it, and they turn out to be patently wrong, I'm afraid that one of the things you should do then is to really think very hard about whether you should just take your loss and move on. Now, of course, people hate taking losses. They much prefer to believe people roll out expressions such as the bad news is in the price, (laughs) or it's had its profit warning, I'm sure things will get better. Uh, The truth of the matter is when you're dealing with a company, a a specific one share investment, once that company has had a profit warning or it's disappointed you, it's probably a weaker company. It's still facing the same level of competition. It may well have not kept up with changes in competition in its industry. It may actually be much less likely to be able to recover than the company which has surprised you by doing what you expected to do and doing more and having more money to spend on research and finding uh, the money that they spent many years ago on something you believed in actually is proving to be valuable in a much broader range of applications than you expected. And so our inclination to take profits but not to take losses can drag our portfolios towards companies that are struggling and away from the companies that are actually thriving. Well, a very good point there. But as a fund manager, 
this is your day job. You're constantly having to review your positions on different investments. But what techniques could our DIY investor listeners at home try to do the same thing themselves? So to pull things together, certainly um, the most difficult thing and the thing that the full-time fund managers spend their time doing is is working out valuation, working out whether the share price really has discounted the bad news or not. And that's quite tricky unless you're very comfortable with accounts. And I mean, but there are plenty of very good books explaining how to do fundamental analysis, if you like. But the simplest things to do is, to, is really just to ask yourself the questions that I've outlined. Has the company, has the fund that I bought, has it still got the same basic thesis intact? Has the reason that I bought it uh, changed or, or has it been confirmed by the past? More particularly, given the rate of technology change, the rate of political change, rate of demographic change in the world, have events overtaken this company or has the company made the best of the changes in the world and the opportunities as well as the threats over the period I've held on to it? Does the chairman's statement or the fund manager's statement fill me with confidence or are there things in there which I really wasn't expecting? All this information is available on the web. And then in terms of the fundamental analysis, the most straightforward thing to do and perhaps the most important thing to do is just have a look at how much debt the company has. Mm. As long as a company isn't spending too much time with its bankers, it can probably get through the next recession. It can probably invest in the technology that it needs to catch up. However, if a company's still got quite a lot of debt, uh, then I'm afraid that the board, however talented the board is, the board's hands are tied. They just haven't got the money to keep up with a increasingly competitive and increasingly expensive range of technologies that you have to invest in uh, to remain competitive these days. And in those cases, I'd recommend moving on and, and looking for a new thesis rather than soldiering on. Well, thank you very much there to Simon Edelstone, fund manager at R. Smith. You can read Simon's column in this weekend's edition of FT Money, buy us in all good news agents from Saturday, or read us online at ft.com slash money. That's it for this week's podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me or our team of experts, you can email us money at ft.com or follow us on Twitter for the latest news updates at FT Money. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.